The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. G'day Cobbers, I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his holiday fun planner Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 92 of The Big Picture for the week beginning January 29, 2017. Here we are, it's the first show of the year and coming up... We have got the Kennedys are back on the big screen with the release of biopic Jackie. And Google Earth mends broken hearts in a true life drama, Lion. G'day, Mark. Sam, welcome back. Happy New Year and happy Australia Day to you as well for this week. And this is our third year. Our for, third year of I mean, the big well, picture. You know, in portions. In por- yeah, and it's the start <laughs> of the third year. But you're already claiming year. it as three oh, years. Yeah, that's just, right. <laughs> it already feels like three years. <laughs> uh, but it just feels like yesterday, Mark. Okay. It's nice to be here for the third year. It's good, actually. And I hope you're enjoying the show, too, so far. <laughs> it's been, definitely been the best show thus far this year. And I'd just like to say, for those people who are not looking at the vodcast, I'm wearing my... Christmas present. Yes, my Ben Affleck t-shirt. Thank you very much, guys. That was very much appreciated. Look, there you go for the video, people. Such uh, a steely glaze. Wow. That is a hilarious t-shirt. Given how big a fan you are of Ben Affleck, which I'm sure you're going to be reminding us of throughout 2017. All right, well, let's get to what is happening this week in the movies. What are we watching in the cinema, Ben? Well, speaking of Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck is directed (laughs) and starring in a new film called Live By Night. Or What Could Possibly Go Wrong With That? What Could Possibly Go Wrong? It's a Prohibition-era organised crime film. Got a pretty good cast in it. Zoe Saldana, Chris Cooper, Sienna Miller. And it's based on a book written by Dennis Lehane, who is the guy who wrote Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone, which Mark will disagree with me on this, but Ben Affleck directed that film, and I thought it was a cracker. But apparently Live By Night's not that good. It's only rating about 33% on Rotten Tomatoes with Ooh. critics, which basically is thumbs down, which Mark would have given before he even walked into the cinema. <laughs> that opened at cinemas last week, and so did another little film, which could become the biggest small film of 2017, a film called Moonlight, which up until a couple of weeks ago, apart from um, hardcore film fans in Australia, no one really had heard of this film. But at the Golden Globes, it was awarded the best motion picture of the year, Moonlight. It's about uh, a one guy across decades of his life on everyone's journey of self-discovery, and this guy's played by three different actors across the film. Moonlight, I think the only word of warning I've got for this, or maybe two, one is we haven't seen it, so we're not really recommending it necessarily, but apparently it's fantastic. But also the lead character wrestles with his sexual identity and possibly his attraction towards men. So that's the content of Moonlight, but it's been heralded around the place as a bit of a winner as opposed to Live By Night. But both of those are at cinema now. Mm-hmm. All right, it's been a dry summer of television, but I think there's some things starting to appear on the small screens. Were you watching Mark. the reruns of MASH with the rest of us, honestly? No, a whole lot of cricket big bash every night. <laughs> yeah, actually, every night. There was a lot of it, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. dear. Okay, okay what's well, on? look at There's some great stuff coming. Now, look, I don't know if you saw last year, Hunted, season one. Did you ever see Hunted? Look, it's a British show. It's well worth a watch. It's on the ABC. The season two, so season two has kicked off uh, this Wednesday, February the 1st at 9.30pm. Basically, what happens is a bunch of civilians are told to disappear, do the best they can to sort of hide from the authorities in the UK. And then they use all of the uh, resources of the government in terms of phone tapping, tracking software and all that sort of stuff to see if they can find them. This okay, is like so for fun? For fun. So you can see <laughs> what? you see whether or not it will, uh, you can actually evade the authorities. You know, everyone talks about like, yeah, I could I could disappear. I could go off the grid. You could. Yeah. Well, you, can maybe you? you? Maybe you can't. Mm. Ah. They've got 28 days. Last year's season was spectacular. 
spectacular and just watching people run around in circles, paranoid, going, I think I'm being watched. I think I'm being watched. <laughs> but, you know, the truth was they found them all. Like, it was incredible. You know, so it's amazing. I, I figure it's well worth watching. Have a good look at that. Um, also, and this is a highlight for my family, do you remember that little old film, A Series of Unfortunate Events? Oh, Lem- the Lemony Snicket movie with Jim Carrey. I really like that. I know. And now the television series is being launched I've heard on about Netflix. this. Yeah, okay. So based on the much-loved Lemony Snicket books, the series follows the orphan Baudelaire siblings, Violet, Klaus and Sonny, who are sent to live with their distant cousin, Count Olaf, who plots to steal their inheritance. Well, once again, he loses guardianship of the children. If you've seen the film, it's basically the books laid out large, but I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great uh, series. And if it's anything like a lot of the, the Netflix originals that are coming out, kind of starting to rival HBO, I figure it's well worth a watch. So you'll find it on Netflix and it's coming soon. All right. How about some entertainment news that I'm sure no one's looking forward to? <laughs> well, actually, uh, Sam, in this case, I definitely, for one, am not looking forward to this, but I think a lot of other people will be. Emoji the movie. Emoji the movie, which previously was called Emoji Movie Express Yourself. It's coming to a big screen this year, apparently. 3D computer-generated animated film about some multi-expressional emoji who sets out on a journey to become a normal emoji. What? Um, I'm one of the only people in the world, I think, that doesn't like emoticons and emojis. So I, for one, will not be seeing emoji, but I think a lot of people will be lining up to... see this film set you're in the a, world of a smartphone up on screen. You're a backward old man, seriously. Uh. <laughs> okay. Well, look, other entertainment news. You might not be on the cutting edge of entertainment, so you might have missed that little thing called the Golden Globes. And we figured that it's well worth just recapping a couple of little things. The Golden Globe Lords, La La Land, Glitter and Glam aired on January 8, which was a great deal of fanfare. And Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, the musical comedy itself, set up the opening. Did you see the opening to the, to the Golden Globes this year? No, I did you, not. No, we were obviously not on the cutting edge of entertainment, Mark. (laughs) Go and Google that. Honestly, opening ceremony... Um, the Golden Globes for this year is this fantastic riff on La La Land and the opening sequence of La La Land. So go see that. The Golden Globes, the Academy Awards have uh, had exactly zero overlap in their voting bodies. But Globes are d- decided by a group of 90 to 100 foreign journalists and Oscars by more than about 6,000 actors, directors and cinematographers. So the two are kind of like vying for different sorts of markets. The Globes' separation of dramas from musicals and comedies also precludes drawing a straight line to the Oscar movie categories. And yet, we are already getting those indicators in the Golden Globes as to what might happen. Definitely, as Ben said earlier, look out for what's going to happen with Moonlight, which Mm. picked up Best Picture. Mm. All right, guys, before we get on to our first review for the show, Monster Trucks and what your kids are watching, I've got a true or false statement to put out. First true or false statement for Big Picture this year. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to be talking about Jackie, which stars Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy, the wife of John F. Kennedy. And then after that, Mark's going to be talking about a film called Lion that Nicole Kidman stars in. So bringing all of these threads together, here's a true or false statement about Nicole Kidman playing a really famous woman. Nicole Kidman playing a really famous woman. So Nicole Kidman was in The Hours. She played the author, Virginia Woolf. She won an Oscar for that. Nicole Kidman loved wearing the prosthetic nose, the fake nose as Virginia Woolf so much that apparently she wore it in private too because at the same time as filming was going on for the film, she was getting divorced from Tom Cruise. Now, much to her delight... <laughs> this by, is how she got him back. <laughs> by wearing her fake nose... No, no, here comes the true or false. By wearing a fake nose out and about, Nicole Kidman found, and here we go, three choices you could possibly have. She found that she looks so much like Helen Hunt you know, the actress from mm, Mad About yeah. You. People were stopping in the street asking her if she was Helen Hunt. That's number one. Or did she like to know so much that she found out that no one recognized her in public? Or when having lunch on the Universal lot, most people con- confused her with one of the cleaners. 
So, Nicole Kidman wore a fake nose during hours, liked it so much that she wore it offset. She was confused with Helen Hunt. No one recognized her at all, or she was mistaken for a cleaner. Mm. I'm going to go see. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to think that one through. You will find out after we talk about this. All right. Well, kids' movies have been delivering playful storylines built around inanimate objects for quite some time now. Think of cars, planes, Cars 2, planes, fire and rescue. <laughs> so cars and planes. And basically. Cars 3 next year as well. Mm. So you think you'd know what you're in for when you see marketing for a film called Monster Trucks, and you'd actually be wrong. This latest offering for the youngest members of your family is more about subterranean life forms than cars come to life, and how being a responsible member of your family has its limits. There's something going on here. I don't even know how to begin to explain. Take a look. He likes hiding in my truck. <laughs> This thing is awesome, it's smart. It is an engine for my truck. Isn't that right, Creech? You named him Creech? Think you can keep up with me? You got it! You see that? Show off! Okay, see if you can follow this slightly improbable plot. Okay. There's an oil drilling company somewhere in the back states of America near a small town, and they're drilling away, and they come to a great big pocket of water somewhere, you know, like kilometres beneath the earth. And they go, ah, maybe it contains subterranean life. I hope it doesn't, because we want the oil that's just next to it. Um, but all of a sudden, the, the oil rigs start jigging around, and... Three whale-sized uh, creatures get sucked up the pipe. Don't don't think too carefully about that. Um, and then pop out onto the surface of the earth, uh, and they start causing havoc because they're a little distressed at being pulled out of their environment. One of them nips off to the local junkyard and hides in the body of a car, which a young man called Trip is restoring. Uh, and it turns out that a the body of a monster truck is the perfect environment for this creature from subterranean planet uh, wow. hijinks ensue so that would have been a great pitch session I think yeah. <laughs> to try to sell that movie yeah. it does sound faintly ridiculous Mark <laughs> but this is obviously for kids do you reckon the kids will still enjoy it look um, it, the kids do get a kick out of it but look we're warning to parents because this is in our segment on what your kids are watching mm. uh, and this is one of those ones where you will want to flip a coin to see who has to do it because neither of you should go you know, who's going to take one for the team who's going to do this one for the kids okay <laughs> the kids do have good fun I took some boys along to it they had a great fun uh, just looking at monster trucks crash into things so it's pretty much as far as the plot goes um, it, but it is one of those ones where I guess um, because life forms are being sucked up through pumps uh, and are expressing expressing human emotions and hugging and have parents and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, it doesn't just take the bounds of probability and stretch them that breaks them over its knee and throws them in the recycling bin. So You mentioned parents. Parents are interesting in films like this. They usually pop up, but often they don't have much to do or they're usually off on the sidelines or don't get involved too much. What about this one? How do they shape up here? Yeah, Monster Trucks actually gives us a range of parents to look at. Okay, so the first one it gives us is the bad dad, the one who's sort of, not the violent dad or anything like that, but the one who walks out on Trip. You know, Trip's family uh, is a single parent family because dad walked out because he he just, I don't know, couldn't hack it, something like that. Um, and then he comes back into the picture and Tripp's hopes are raised and that he only comes back into the picture to basically make a mess of things. And then there's the good dad, okay, which is the sort of the stand-in dad come boyfriend of, of mum at this point. But he's kind of 
ineffectual and um, too obsessed with keeping his car clean and that sort of stuff. So there's nothing terribly there to recommend him either. And then there's Danny Glover. Da- who, from Lethal Weapon, Danny from Glover. From Lethal Weapon, who inexplicably turns up uh, in a wheelchair. I don't know what it contributes to the plot at all, <laughs> except that he's a mechanic, so it makes it improbable. That's <laughs> a whole other level of strange going on there. Um, really, the film struggles to actually present anything decent in the way of parents. So this is kind of a, uh, not a helpful plot in that regard. You have all of the adults who are looking silly and the only smart people are the kids who know what's going on. Not a big fan of that sort of model. Uh, is there any sense of responsibility in what Trip is doing? In yeah, the film? he's trying to rescue uh, his, you know, blubbery friend from the deeps of the earth and get him back to his mum and dad. Uh, look, I don't know. I'm just saying it. <laughs> I want to wash my mouth out. But look, uh, he so that's the level of responsibility he's trying to demonstrate, and it's a personal level of responsibility. But any form of corporate responsibility that a kid might express always. Um, it takes second place to that. So this is what the film is basically saying. You know, morally speaking, you can do anything you like if you've got a good goal. Mm, now, we know right. that we know that as utilitarianism, if anybody was sort of like studying that sort of stuff. You know, it's basically saying morality takes a backseat to the need to do the greater good or something like that. Like ends justify the means. You got it. And in this film, um, Trip is destroying car parking lots, um, smashing into other people's, you know, property um, because he gets angry as much as because he gets, um, you know, a goal in mind to actually get his friend Creech, you know, back to the deep. Uh, so I really find this kind of unhelpful because it, you do put, it's a fun film, but you do keep putting in front of kids this sort of drip morality of if it's important enough, you can do whatever you like. And that's not where we want to go as Christians, not parents anyway. Okay, Monster Trucks stars Jane Levy, Lucas Till, Rob Lowe and Amy Ryan. It's rated PG for mild themes and opened nationally last Thursday. Now, Ben, we've got to get to our answer for true or false. All right, gentlemen, Nicole Kidman, she loved wearing a prosthetic nose, a fake nose, when she played Virginia Woolf in The Hours. She loved it so much that she wore it when she was, like, not filming. And when she was out and about, she found that she looked so much like Helen Hunt from Mad About You. She was confused with her, for her in public. That's one option. No one recognised her at all when she was out in the fake nose or when she was having lunch on the lot, people thought she was the cleaner. Which one of those is true? I'm going to go with Helen Hunt. Come only on because see. I've been trying to imagine Nicole Kidman in a big nose and seeing if that amounts to Helen Hunt. Going to go cleaner. Dude, you're so wrong. No one recognised her at all. Oh. Not mistaken for Helen Hunt or the cleaner. Poor old Nicole, but she liked it. But do people recognise Helen Hunt these days? You see, I could still be right. <laughs> Okay, just saying. All right, well, coming up on the big picture, a true blue fair dinkum music quiz. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. And also Natalie Portman starring in a new movie about the personal and public pain of losing a US president. Welcome back to the show. Well, another Australia Day has passed us by. Did you get the Barbie out? Did you sample a pav? Sure did, mate. Or a lamington? Crikey. Bonza. (laughs) Struth. I love that Aussie stuff. How good is it? Well, those sorts of time-honoured traditions... Okay, that's enough. That's enough. Too much Aussie. Those sort of time-honoured traditions got us thinking about Australia's contribution to the world of music, in particular, music in film. So, for our first soundtrack segment of the year, we thought we'd have an Australia Day-themed quiz. Okay, so this is what I've got in mind. That instead of just playing some Australian songs, I mean, anyone can do that in Australia Day, I'm sure we've probably had it up to the years by now. Uh, what about those that appeared in film? So I'm going to play some songs, and you guys are going to guess what films they turned up in. How's that? All right. Let's do number one. How can you see looking through those tears? 
was well, the songs live it up. Mental yeah, as anything. Mental as anything. What movie is it from? Now, this movie is Australian or international? Oh, if I was to give that away, that would be half the quiz. Oh, would it? Strain uh, your mind. I I can't picture what, what this is from. Like the late eighties, I think the song, but I cannot picture what song, what movie this was used in. Sam. Sam. I've got no idea. It's too. It's before my time. Great quiz, Mark, before for the first one of the year. Such an old man. Um, okay, this is Crocodile 80s, Dundee. Right? <laughs> what was it? Ah, this yeah? is in Crocodile Dundee. But, okay, enjoy it. All right. How about we go to number two? Okay, let's see if I can make it a lot easier for you. Please. This is a little more recent. Oath. Monday morning feels so bad. You said recent? Oh, well, yes. Well, the, well, the songs are old, Everybody but Friday on my mind, the easy beats. Easy beats, yeah. I'm doing well on what the songs are. <laughs> You're I'm such feeling a, okay you should be myself. a DJ. I really should be. What movie is this in? Very recent. You reviewed it, oh, I don't know, just towards the end of the year. Ooh. And you loved it. Might it feature a canine of a certain colour? I think it does. Oh, really? Yeah. True Blue Red Dog. True Blue Red Dog. Red had, Dog True Blue. Had I, didn't really, I didn't really like that. I know, I was kidding. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, thanks for reminding me. Anyway, the song's good. Okay, thank you. Let's hear a bit of it. <laughs> yeah, let's get rid of it. And now let's talk about actually a film I'm sure you'll like. And if you don't, you need to be slapped around a fair bit. <laughs> okay, try this one. So this is a classic Australian film. Uh, I'm going to give you a few clues. How about Brian Brown? Okay. I'm going to talk about King's Cross. Uh, and, of course, possibly one of the greatest young actors of Australia's recent generations, Heath Ledger. And uh, you didn't even need to give me as many clues on this one, Mark, because I'm actually starting to get what this low-line bass rumble is. There's a Powderfinger song. I can't remember what the title is, but it's from Two Hands, the, the film you're talking about that Heath Ledger starred in alongside Brian Brown about King's Cross gangsters. It's These Days. These, these Days by Powderfinger, yeah. Oh, this is such a great song. Great it's, movie, too. And it's like one of those great examples where an Australian song was perfectly married mm. to the topic itself. So, you know, I feel like it's a, a brilliant piece of a musical conjunction. Shall we hear some of it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. There you go, gentlemen. Three songs, three Australian films, and you are at least one third Australian by my reckoning. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, just over a week ago, billionaire businessman Donald Trump was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States of America. How Trump or his high-profile predecessor, Barack Obama, will, will be remembered remains to be seen, but one of their predecessors, John F. Kennedy, made an enormous impact. New biopic Jackie takes a look at the immediate impact of Kennedy's assassination, especially upon his wife, and what those left behind try to leave behind. People need their history. They need to know that real men actually lived here. I've grown accustomed to a great divide between what people believe and what I know to be real. And how would you like him remembered? There should be more horses, 
More soldiers. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? There's more crying. More cameras. This is making us look like barbarians. What's wrong with you? You don't have to do this. I will march with Jack. Breathe, Alone, if necessary. I'm not the first lady. In 1963, gentlemen, John F. Kennedy, the then president of America, was assassinated in Dallas. And Jackie focuses on uh, the sort of week to two weeks after that, particularly upon his wife, Jackie, played by Natalie Portman. And the film itself is a bit fragmented. So you get what happens kind of uh, uh, beforehand, during, after. Like, it's all over the place a little bit as we focus on how Jackie in particular deals with the loss of her husband, but also tries to have his memory celebrated and commemorated and a lot of that is done through her being interviewed by a journalist played by Billy Crudup and that effectively frames the way the movie depicts Jackie trying to deal with her grief. Wow. Do you need to be a fan of history to kind of get along and like this? Mark, this is one of those occasions where you say yes and no. So, (laughs) yes, I'd imagine uh, most people going along to see this would have already some knowledge and some interest in John F. Kennedy and his wife, Jackie. But no, uh, because... It's a movie, and like, there'd be plenty of people like myself who get their history from movies, and I learn loads of things from movies. Hopefully, they're not lying to me. But uh, <laughs> Although I understand that this one plays a little bit fast and loose with the truth. I'd just like to point out The Lord of the Rings is not a historical <laughs> film. <laughs> but for those like me who uh, don't necessarily know a lot about plenty of topics that turn up in movies, you'll be enticed along in this particular for this particular project, I think because of Natalie Portman's performance, which already is being talked up. It was a bit of a shock that she didn't win at the Golden Globes, uh, a French actor. Actress Isabel Huppert won Best Actress for a film called Elle. But Natalie Portman is going to go strong at the Oscars, might possibly win for her performance here. So a lot of people are going to be going along for Natalie Portman. Well, this is possibly one of the most tragic events of the 20th century. I mean, it rocked the world. I mean, people of that generation know where they were when JFK was killed. So is it depressing to watch? Yeah. Yeah, it is, gents. It's a depressing biopic. Well, it's hardly not going to be, is it, given the subject matter of it? Uh, this is from a, a director, a Chilean director, a director from Chile called uh, Pablo Lorraine, who's made a great film. I think he's tried to make a biopic that's slightly different, and the slight difference in it comes from everything from the way the film's constructed. So it is very fragmented across time. It takes a little bit to get your head around where exactly are we and why are people talking about things in this particular way. Also, everything from the music score to the look of the film the score is fantastic but it's very unsettling and very glum and so as a result you get kind of uh, enveloped in this world of grief and then particularly through the the like focus upon Jackie played by Natalie Portman initially I found Portman's performance a little bit over the top uh, the way she speaks the way she dresses the way she acts is obviously very much like Jackie Kennedy if you go back and watch footage of Jackie Kennedy but the performance is so affected I found it a little bit distracting but the longer it goes along the more Portman kind of sinks into it and you get really quite captivated I think by watching a woman unravel in public and also in private about this amazing shocking event that just like you know traumatized the world effectively but she's at the epicenter of it trying to work out how she deals with not just her own personal pain but then also how she's going to uphold her husband in public as well and then throughout the film you get her uh, discussions with Billy Crudup the, the journalist and she's trying to do everything from manipulate his questions and his presentation of truth to being frank and honest and she also has some sort of confessional scenes with a priest played by John Hurt all of these things wrapping up into a very depressing very uh, 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 kind of overwhelming portrait of grief but a, a pretty excellent portrait nonetheless. 
this is looking back on history. What does Jackie tell us about how we'd like to be remembered? I reckon Jackie, in one word, is about legacy. There is so much in this film about how JFK is going to be remembered, com- commemorated. Uh, Jackie is, is obsessed with... Uh, particularly getting a, a funeral for her husband, a funeral procession like Abraham Lincoln, one of the most famous American presidents, like he had, like she pretty much wants to have exactly the same one done because she believes her husband is on the same level as 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 uh, Abraham Lincoln and yet still readily admits that he wasn't perfect and that she's effectively trying to make a saint out of a man while still admitting that he wasn't one. So the film, I think, really raises these huge questions about what is important to us what are we working for? How do we actually want to be remembered? And, and it's a good question then to challenge yourself with as, as you watch this lady deal with grief, you think about how would I want to live my life so that people will actually remember me rather than, as Jackie demonstrates, kind of trying to create a myth about someone or a legend about someone deliberately so that you can have their memory put forward in a particular way. Maybe try to live your life in that particular way rather than someone constructing a legacy afterwards. All right. Well, Jackie stars Natalie Portman, Billy Crudup. Uh, Crudup? Is that how you say Crudup? Sure. Let's just say Crudup. Yeah. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard and John Hurt. It is now showing at a movie house near you and is rated MA15 plus for scenes of injury detail. And I'm sure that's obviously graphic images of um, Yeah, there's some pretty confronting images of JFK's dead body after the assassination. Well, actually, if you want to talk about all the sorts of things that you could experience or learn from that particular film, good place to do it would be over at our Facebook page. Uh-huh. We encourage you to go over to the Big Pictures website. Actually, bigpixelwebsite.com is a great place to get all sorts of stuff that we've done in the past. And our Facebook page is a great place for, us, for you to tell us all about your thoughts. That's right. And it's a new year, all new content every week from us online. So go to the Big Picture website or go to the Facebook page. Well, it's time for a break now, but coming up on The Big Picture, lots more, including what the birth of Australian cinema reveals about our spiritual values, and Nicole Kidman and the slumdog millionaire himself team up for adoption drama Lion. Welcome back. Well, earlier in the show, we had a sing-along celebration of Australia Day from last week, keeping with the oi, oi, oi spirit of things. Our press record interview this week is all about the spiritual side of things in Australian cinema. Now, Peter Bentley is president of the Australian Religious Press Association and a film reviewer and researcher who went back to the birth of Aussie cinema to explore our beliefs on the big screen. And we've got him on the line right now to say good day to Peter. Hello. Hi, Ben. Good to be with you. Hey, Peter. Now, before we dive into what you studied, explain to us quickly and neatly what it is you actually studied at the birth of Australian cinema. Yes, well, I looked at... uh, Well, actually, most uh, silent films are not available. That's the period up to about 1929 from 1900. And you wanted to focus on silent films? I wanted to focus on silent films because I've been looking at the representation of religion in the 20th century in Australian film generally, but I thought that was a neat period to look at originally and also just to look at what was the foundation, what was showing in that period, and you get a bit of an idea then of the contrast and changes that have happened. Now, Peter, how did you actually track down some of these silent films? You just mentioned that it's very difficult to find them. How did you find them? Yes, well, look... um, only anywhere between 3 and 5%, I think, are fully available. And I did watch quite a few at the National Film and Sound Archive, which fortunately at the time when I was doing things had an office in Sydney as well. OK, but now they're based in Canberra, aren't but they? now they're based in Canberra. But you can even get some of the earlier ones, even on DVD and arrangements now. Sure, sure. Now, Peter, why did you want to do this? Why did you want to go back to the birth of Australian cinema and look at religion particularly in Australian films? Yes, well, 
I, look, it's part of my overall interest because I, I just can't help to watch any film or TV without looking at the religious dimensions of them nowadays. And they may be avert or they may be not avert, but I think people would realise that really you can't watch uh, virtually any example of television nowadays which doesn't have some sort of form of religious character or uh, emphasis in some ways and it helps people to understand that rather than thinking they're marginal characters many times they're often uh, very integral now peter i'm going to get back to the modern day but before we do what are some of the notable discoveries that you found when you went back into silent films well i think the silent film era really reflected the fact that uh, in the institutional church was the institution of the time so when you were going to... As in like the dominant institution the dominant across society? church, yeah. So it was really, if you were going to show religion in that period, it was going to be Christianity, and it was going to be the major uh, face of the time, major denominations like Anglican and Catholic. And they were usually going to be using um, those figures uh, in an institutional way. So they would be doing the things you would expect them to be doing, uh, burying people, like arranging the funerals, marrying people because 97% of marriages were conducted with the church right in that period, like in the early 20th century. So you'd expect them to do those institutional things, and that's really what they were doing. There's also a bit of an example, I guess, of sectarianism as well still in those days, because there were still the issues of... Uh, Catholicism versus other faiths as well. In right, right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and so, Peter, now moving more towards the modern day, out of those, some of those things that you discovered when you're looking at religion in silent films, the birth of Australian cinema, moving forward then across, oh, like a, a, the last century of mm. Australian movies, did you find that what you, what you noticed in those early films carried on through Australian cinema for, yeah, let's just say, the past decade? Yeah, look, I think... Sorry, the past 100 years? Uh, look, I think the changes have been, because uh, as you probably know too, there weren't very many films from a certain period until the new wave of Australian cinema started in the 70s as yes. well. Uh, but the changes, I guess, in the last 30 to 40 years have been that while um, cinema has still used religious figures as uh, in institutional roles, like they're still marrying and burying people in particular... There's also been the introduction of what I call the fanatic or crazy religious figure. That's often been something that has appeared as well, where people, uh, they want to have someone who's a little bit mad. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a little bit of a theme. Yes, I think the yes. other themes too is that sectarianism, of course, is virtually gone nowadays. Uh, and people don't worry about those issues at all. You know, there's, they're not uh, of interest. And the other thing would be, uh, the emergence of blasphemy, in a way, because in the silent period, uh, blasphemy was still, you know, a crime. So. Yes, yes. Uh, but, of course, now, uh, virtually anything goes and anything can be said. So the, way, the way you can speak about God and Jesus. speak about God and mm. religion and all those. Sort yeah, of there's some big changes there. Look, Peter, thank you very much for joining us on The Big Picture this Australia Day week to give us your insights in the spiritual, the religious content as it as has been found in Australian cinema for, oh, uh, the past... 100 years. Thanks very Great. much, Peter. Good to be with you, Ben. Thanks. Bye. Now, parents in the audience, do you remember when your child was five years old? Do you have a five-year-old now? That might be the case. Well, imagine if he or she accidentally got locked on a train and was transported 1,600 kilometres across the country to a place where they didn't even speak the language and needed to survive on the streets on their own. Would you have any real hope of seeing your child again? 
Well, the film Lion is that's just such a tale, actually, about a boy who is separated from everyone who loves him at a very early age and spent the next 25 years finding his way home. And in the process, audiences discover what it is to be at home and still feel as though you belong somewhere else entirely. How long were you on the train? A couple of days. A couple of days. It would take a lifetime to search all the stations in India. Do you have any idea what it's like? How every day my real brother screams my name. I always thought that I could keep this family together. I need you, Saru. What if you do find home and they're not even there? And you just keep searching? Saru is the lovable five-year-old boy belonging to an impoverished family of labourers in India's northeast, and he loves to help his older brother Gudu and pesters him one day until the older brother takes him on a journey on a train to a local town where he's going to look for some work. Well, Gudu doesn't come back when he leaves him on the train platform, and Saru gets so scared he decides what he'll do is he'll go and sleep in one of these empty carriages. This mm. is a decommissioned train. It's being taken out. He goes to sleep. He wakes up. The train is travelling across the country. He's tr- it's travelling for two days until it and comes he's five to, years old he's five years old the train's empty mm-hmm. uh, until he comes to Kolkata uh, which uh, and then uh, the train's decommissioned he's you know ejected onto the street into a crowd of of terrifying strangers uh, and then he's exposed to street life and living very you know much on his own and on his own devices until eventually uh, a kindly teenager gets him into a kind of adoption program uh, and then enter um, uh, Nicole Kidman and David Wenham as Australian parents from Tasmania who adopt him. Uh, and the story goes on. I mean, that's only like half of it. Then Dev Patel becomes the adult Saru who eventually uses Google Earth to find his way back home. Now, I'm not spoiling much here on account of the fact it's actually quite a well-known story, but that doesn't take away from the emotional impact of this harrowing tale. Because this is this is well-known because this is a true story. Yeah, isn't this it? is. So, Saru Briley is a guy who came from Tasmania or who grew up in Tasmania, and he wrote a book, Long Way Home, about him using Google Earth to find out where he actually came from, you know, originally, because he had no memory, even though he was ethnically Indian, he had no real memory of uh, where he came from because of the adoption process. Now, Dev Patel loves the true life stories, because he's, he's the guy best known still for Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, isn't he, true, true. Now, what's Lyon saying about our knowledge of ourselves then? Because it seems like it's really narrowing in on us and identity and where we come from and who we are. You see, the film is really neatly split in two. You've got the story of the five-year-old boy and then you traverse you know, about 20 years into the future and you've got Dev Patel's character, the, the 20-year-old or 25-year-old in this case, looking for his home. But what they have in common is just the power that home has on their life the concept of home and where you actually belong. And so they're both struggling in their own ways. The small child, sometimes you cut back and see him again, small child, adult man, all of us being pushed along by the idea that our origins, where we come from, are so important to us that we really can't understand who we are until we know where we belong. Seems like home is pretty central to this whole story of Lion. Did it make you think about your own home, what it means to you, Mark? Yeah, not in the way you'd think, though. I mean, this is the weird thing, because I guess it kind of throws you back on your own childhood memories. But what I really thought about as I was uh, thinking of this is the sense of longing. There's this real magnetic feeling, you know, in 
in Dev, who doesn't really know what he's actually longing for, the adult Saru. He's at home. He's in an upwardly mobile sort of home in Tasmania. He's got everything he really needs. He's got a job. He's studying. So it's not as if he's in deprivation, and yet he's still longing for something. Something's missing. Yeah. Mm. And weirdly, even though I grew up in, in quite a stable family background too, I recognize that longing, not because I was adopted or anything like that, but because there is that strange sense in us sometimes where we feel like there's somewhere else we should be. And I didn't really understand that until I actually read something by C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Hmm. Uh, And he was talking about heaven. And I realized that at a a sort of, I guess, a teenage age, Hmm. that what I was longing for was something I hadn't experienced, but I inherently knew was part of me. Uh, And I feel like that's reflected in the film. He's longing for something he doesn't quite know, but it's real. And I figure everybody who sits there and who's listening to the radio program today and goes, you know, there's something not quite right that I'm still longing for. You know, there's a really good chance it's that something of another world that C.S. Lewis talks about. And I think the film captures that. Lion stars Dev Patel, Nicole Kidman, David Wenham and the incredible five-year-old Sonny Pawar. It's rated PG for mild themes, which Mark thinks might be an underrating. Yeah, it's a bit terrifying. Right. I'm not sure if PG is how I would rate this film. And Lion's now showing at cinemas. All right, coming up on the big picture, what the Bible has to say on the subject of adoption and also what the movies uh, tell us about being the President of the United States of America. Welcome back to The Big Picture. Now, just before the break, Mark reviewed the heart-rending tale Lion, the story of a lost five-year-old Indian boy who eventually finds a home with a loving Australian family. The Australian mother, played by Nicole Kidman, tells her son Saru that he's a special because they chose him. They didn't want anyone else. That sort of adoption, that choice, is at the heart of the gospel story. So we thought it fitting to ask Big Picture regular and Bible Society CEO Greg Clark what the Bible has to say about adoption. Romans 8 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Well, the struggle for identity is a tough one. And anyone who's been adopted would probably say they have one of the hardest gigs. There are plenty of TV shows that impress on us our strong desire to know who we are and where we came from. And if your family tree is not that nuclear, you can feel pretty uncertain about where you fit into things, and especially whether you are loved. Which makes it doubly wonderful that in Christian thinking, everyone is adopted. You might know your mum and dad and live with them in a happy family, but to truly live, according to Christianity, you have to be adopted. Well, what does this mean? Our Bible passage from Paul's letter to the Roman church helps us understand this. Your origins in the flesh are irrelevant to your place before God. Your so-called family connections won't help you here. This was hard news to hear for some of God's people in the Old Testament because they thought they had an inside running on being loved by God, just because of where and to whom they were born. But no, God made a promise that all people groups in all the earth could come to him as sons and daughters. When people tell me that Christianity is too conservative, I tend to giggle because the Christian message breaks down all sorts of barriers that other religions, and indeed secularism, keep firmly in place. It's very radical because it says whether you are male or female, black or white, Jewish, Arabic, Asian, Aboriginal or European, makes no difference before God. You have no advantage nor disadvantage. Each of us has to come to God through his promises. Promises like, 
that anyone who confesses their sin and turns to him in faith and humility will be considered his son or daughter. And isn't that idea of adoption great? It has a sense of rescuing someone from a plight of loneliness, abandonment and loss. But the idea of being returned to your true family, well, that's even better. The family that really loves and cares for you. And that's the way God describes caring for us. Like a father winning back his lost and lonely children and holding on so tight they'll never be lost again. Greg Clark from Eternity. Uh, in fact, actually, Greg Clark from the Bible Society, and which also is responsible for Eternity Newspaper and Eternity Digital. And if you're looking for some brilliant things to have a look at over the holidays, why don't you have a look at postcards from places you'd rather not be? Eternity shares the top 50 countries where persecution of Christians is the worst and interviews Mike Gore, CEO of Open Doors, about his painful annual list about people suffering for Christian faith. And now for something completely different, I impersonate Elvis, but I love Jesus. <laughs> what? Go, say that again. Yeah. I impersonate Elvis, but I love Jesus. Another fantastic little insight from Eternity. Check out the video interview with Elvis impersonator and Bible college student Mark Borg. Wow. And that's eternitynews.com.au? That is indeed. Okay. Over at insights.uca.org.au, Insights is a big believer, big supporter well behind the big picture. Uh, Insights is full of film reviews every week. Russ Matthews is a regular on our show, helps us out a lot. Plenty of reviews there. So if you're looking to see something over summer holidays, you haven't caught some of the bigger blockbusters or some of the smaller films, no matter what it is, go to insights.uca.org.au and check out Russ Matthews' reviews. been a long summer, gents. I've been waiting a long time for this. Welcome back, Sam. Another Welcome top five back. for 2017. Yeah. I don't know what you did with yourself when you didn't have top fives oh, every oh. week in your life, Sam. Obviously, you went through the back episodes. Obviously, you <laughs> so went back I all did. through. What, what show we up to? 92? 92? Yeah, I had a few to catch up on. So, yeah. yeah. And they were great, I'm yeah. sure, of course. All of them. All of them. <laughs> you just spent like one day listing the top fives. That was the best day of your life, Sam. That's right. But we have another top five today to kick we off do. the year. We do. Let's add to it, Sam. Uh, in honour... Of the newest president of the United States, Donald Trump. We thought we'd do <laughs> hail to th- the chief. We thought hail to the chief. We thought we would do a top five of what the movies have had to tell us about being the US president. And here's the one notice I will put up about this before we get into the list. All of these are fictional presidents. Now they might have some similarities to real life presidents, but I didn't pick actors who have played real presidents. Instead, I have just gone for fictional presidents and what they tell us about the top job in the White House. Five. And number five, what I've learned from movies is that anyone can do it. Anyone can be the president of the USA. And I, I particularly point out uh, characters such as President William Cooper from 2015's Pixels, who was played by Kevin James, who famously is known as, you know, Paul Blart Mall Cop. Like, so Paul Blart Mall Cop can become president of the United States. Uh, you also might remember Jack Nicholson's performance in Mars Attacks from 1990. That guy was just basically a buffoon. And Leslie <laughs> Nielsen from The Naked Gun played the President of the United States in Scary Movie 3 and 4. Really? And yeah. 4. That's right. Because so he was a two-term president. In this category, I couldn't really narrow it down to find one person who, who uh, symbolised best that anyone can do it. So I just thought I'd go pick off a bunch of names, including this great performance by Terry Crews in Idiocracy back in 2006, where he played President Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho. Uh, <laughs> and you might have seen a lot of memes online when Donald Trump was first announced as the president mm. 
comparing him with this performance by Terry Crews in Idiocracy. I'm attempting to draw no parallels whatsoever. I'm just saying go online, punch in Idiocracy and Donald Trump and see what you can find. Why draw the parallel? They draw themselves. Four. The leader of the free world can also bust heads. Yes, right. he can. The, le- the leader of the free world can go get some, can take action. And I'm particularly talking about Harrison Ford's performance in 1997's Air Force One as President James Marshall. Uh. Because Air Force One is basically diehard on a plane with the president being played by John McClane. As get in, off my plane. Get off my plane. <laughs> That's right. So somehow you get Han Solo, Indiana Jones, Jack Ryan all rolled into one as the president of the USA whose, whose own private plane gets taken over by terrorists. Who's going to save the day? Well, it's not his, what, like, chief of the... What are they called? Special service? Yeah, so, it's, it's secret service. Secret card. service? Pfft, they're, they're a bunch of clowns. Well, they're basically in the, in the dining room. I don't, I don't know. They're probably I don't know what they're doing. Playing cards or something like that. Something. Who's going to save the day? It's the president hiding in the bowels of the plane somewhere. Where he's going to pop up and stop terrorists from taking over his plane. What a great guy. Um, a special shout-out goes to Samuel L. Jackson in a film called Big Game a few years ago, which is about him as the president of the USA crash-landing in Finland, mm. and a young Finnish boy helps him fight off a bunch of terrorists who are chasing him <laughs> around Finland. So it's like him and a 10-year-old Finnish boy going and getting some, but not as much getting some as Air Force One and Harrison Ford's performance. Didn't the real president himself, uh, our, our most recent elected Trump, uh, threaten to knock the lights out of Bernie Sanders? I mean, isn't that a prerequisite then of being president? You've I don't know for sure, to... but I'm going to say probably he said yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, he said a lot of things. That was probably one of one them. One of the many things. Three. Speaking of saying words... Stirring words is often what uh, the movies have shown me about American presidents. And one that comes to mind very strongly is President Thomas J. Whitmore, Bill Pullman Ah. in Independence Day from 1996. Because when you're looking for a leader, you're often looking for a leader in really desperate times. And when those desperate times are a massive alien invasion coming from (laughs) outer space and who's going to save the day, you want some guy to get up who can actually talk the talk. Now, whether he can walk the walk is another thing. But the fact that he can talk the talk is a great thing. And a lot of people, I think, will remember Remember that uh, big speech that Bill Pullman, Thomas J. Whitmore gives. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today we celebrate our Independence Day. Bam! Is it only me or is it disturbing that that's probably more remembered than four score and seven years ago? You know what I'm saying? Like real <laughs> presidential, presidential speeches. Ask that's not right. what you can do for your country. You know, it's... Yeah. That's right. Barack Obama's, uh, like, see you later speech yes. the other week got talked <laughs> up. I think that's yeah. what they call it, the see you later speech. He got talked up a bit by the people. You know, he did he did nicely, a bit of rhetoric. Like, he had some personal stuff and some big uh, global themes, etc. But come on, he should have just ripped off what yeah. Tom Thomas J. Whitmore said in in 996's Independence Day, and we would have all been applauding. This is a pessimistic one, gentlemen. What I've learned from the movies about being the American president is that the best liar wins. The Mm. best liar wins. Controversial. Primary Colors from 1998. Uh, This actually could have been filed under anyone can do it because somehow John Travolta (laughs) became the president or was on the way to becoming the president of of the United States. He's playing a governor, Jack Stanton, in this film, which is based loosely 
read very closely on Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign in 1992. It was written by a guy under under the like a, a shroud of secrecy that was eventually revealed as a close aide to Bill Clinton. That's what Primary Colors, the novel, was based on. And and Clinton was actually in the White House when Primary Colors came out mm. in 1998. Um, this a character of Governor Jack Stanton is a believer in the power of the people to decide, but he's also a bloke who's going to do anything to win and he will manipulate the masses to the point of concealing his womanizing and other sort of dastardly deeds that are going on behind the scenes. A little bit House of Cards. I don't think it's quite <laughs> quite as atrocious as Kevin Spacey's character in House of Cards, but definitely shows that you can lie to the people, lie to their faces, and they might just eat it up and you might be able to get the top job. So that's in at number two. But number one? One. From pessimism to optimism. To a guy who has integrity and is so likable and became so popular that people in real life wanted to vote for him to be in the White House, I'm talking about Jed Bartlett. Martin Sheen played him in The West Wing on TV, 999, 2006. I know this list is the movies taught me what I can do about being American president, but come on. Like, The West Wing and Jed Bartlett, Martin Sheen's character, has become such a dominant force in pop culture as the American president mm-hmm. that he's basically obliterated every other president that's been played on screen screen and it's basically just all about Jed Bartlett. I pl- I actually voted for Jed Bartlett in the last three Australian elections. <laughs> so I feel like, honestly, you know, if you can't have what you want, let people know, and that's how you do it. <laughs> we're not endorsing that behaviour. <laughs> uh, uh, no, 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 we are not. Uh, this uh, West Wing was written by Aaron Sorkin, who also had a go at writing about the American president years earlier in The American President, the film that Michael Douglas starred in. Mm. And he played a very similar character, President Andrew Shepard, to Jed Bartlett. But Jed Bartlett in The West Wing across like seven seasons was able able to really expand upon some of the ideas that Aaron Sorkin would like to put into the White House. So, and, you, and he was a really stark contrast, Jed Bartlett, with George W. Bush at the time, who was a real president. So you got this slightly liberal and progressive um, uh, president in Jeb Bartlett, yet he's really patriotic and hugely popular. He knows his staff members intimately, but he runs the whole country. He's witty and he's casual and he wears polo shirts, but he also can run the free world. That's the kind of guy that a lot of people wanted in the White House. He also attends church every Sunday. He quotes scripture. And at least in my church, he is the most used sermon illustration by my pastor. So <laughs> at number one on what the movie slash TV have taught me about being the American president is Jed Bartlett. Because you can be have integrity and be likable and the people will want you to rule the world. Kundu is in the midst of a civil war. No, it's not. It's in the midst of a one-sided slaughtering of an entire people. Both the Secretary General of the United Nations and the Vatican have pleaded with President Azili for a ceasefire, and both the UN and the Holy Father have struck out to the peril of 115,000 Induye men, women, and God knows children, particularly the boys. Who will soon be men and will rise up. The heads of Ghana, Nigeria, and Zaire have similarly been set packing. The Red Cross has been denied entry on three separate occasions in the last 10 days. President Nazili has 36 hours to give the command to his troops to hand over their weapons to the 82nd Airborne Division of the United States Army. At 36 hours and one minute, I give the order for the 101st Air Assault to take Batanga and run up our flag. Well, with that, we reach the end of our first edition of 2017. Oh, the big picture. It's been Mm. a lot of fun, though. And next week, we're going to continue the fun because oh. coming up, Matthew McConaughey, he's going to turn in a 94-carat performance in gold. 94 We'll carats. explain that more next week. <laughs> also, we take a professional look at issues raised by the Golden Globe's best film, Moonlight. And M. Night Shyamalan is back with his latest thriller, Split. And I'll be back next week, and I will still remain Ben McKenna. <laughs> and I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. 
The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 